0: All right, well, we are looking at our seventh hymn. It's hard to believe that we've already gone through six different songs. This is number seven. The name of the song is called Cornerstone. It's going to go by a few different names, as you'll find out here in just a little bit. But for our purposes tonight, uh, the version that we sing is called Cornerstone. Now, the author of this song is uh, a gentleman by the name of Edward Mote. There is only one picture of him on the internet uh, because he was born in uh, the 1700s. So there was only one picture of him and it's the grainiest picture that you have ever seen. So, uh, I forgot to put it up there, but uh, you wouldn't recognize him if you saw him on the street even if you saw the picture, all right? But his name is Edward Moat. He was born in London, England in 1797 and he died 77 years later at the age, uh, or in 1874. His parents... Uh, being born in England, his parents were owners of a local pub. If you've ever been into another country or um, even if you've been to bars, um, hopefully not recently, um, but if uh, you've ever been to something like that, you'll know what a pub is, a tavern. And uh, Edward Moat grew up going to a school where the Bible was not allowed. Now that's different than saying the Bible is not taught in a school At the school that he went to, the Bible was not allowed on the premises, much less taught. In his memoirs, he says that as a child, he was totally ignorant of God. Let me put a quote up on the screen for you. Here's what he has to say. He says, my Sabbaths, and some people when they speak of Sunday, they refer to it as the Christian Sabbath. And so he's talking about Sunday, the Lord's Day. He said, my Sabbaths were spent in the streets at play. So on Sundays, knew nothing of God, was not going to church, not being raised, and anything like that. And he says, so ignorant was I that I did not know there was a God. That's, that's pretty rare, even in a secular society, for someone to not know that there is such a thing or even a concept of God. But that's what he says he did on his Sundays as a kid. As a young adult, he was an apprentice, As a cabinet maker, which uh, from what I understand, pays really well these days. I think if you want to get your cabinets redone, it might cost you half of what you paid for your home. But nevertheless, prior to his conversion in Christ, Mote describes his experience one day when he entered a house of worship, when he entered a church building. So again, not knowing of Christ, he goes into a church building and here's what he says. I was totally ignorant of the word of life speaking of Christ. He says, when I entered that place of worship. But though I knew not the letter of the law, the Holy Ghost brought the spiritual contents of it into my conscience. Now, that's a mouthful right there. So I want to break down that statement. You just leave it up on the screen for a minute, okay? So let's examine it because it's worthy of consideration. In this statement, Edward Mote is affirming something that the scripture teaches us in Romans 2.15. What it teaches us that even gentiles or non-Jews although they didn't have the Old Testament law in written form they still have the work of God's law written on their hearts okay so we know that God gave the law in, in form, uh, written form. It was on tablets. It was given to Moses. And that's how the Jews had the covenant that God made with them, the law, the Ten Commandments. Do not steal. Do not dishonor God's name and take his name in vain. Have no other idols. Uh, make sure you keep the Sabbath, right? All that was, and so much more was given to Israel. And they had it in written form. Gentiles, non-Jews. They weren't meeting with God at Mount Sinai. Moses wasn't their leader. So they did not have it in written form. And so that's what he's saying. I was totally ignorant of the word of life when I entered that place. And though I knew not the letter of the law, though I didn't know the Old Testament, because he never had a Bible. He grew up with parents that owned a bar. And so that's what he's saying initially. Now, according to Jesus, according to Jesus, Before he left his disciples and ascended into heaven, prior to that, he says, I'm going to go away. And he says, it's good that I go away. The reason being, he says, is so that the Holy Spirit will come in my place. So Jesus is gonna leave, the Spirit's gonna come, and he says, and when the Spirit comes, okay, he's going to convict the world of three things. So there's three things that he's going to bring to bear on the world, on sinners. And he's gonna convict them of sin, going to convict them of righteousness and the judgment to come, right? That they'll be judged by God. Now, we're not going to go through all of those, but I just want to mention the one thing that Jesus says about sin. In regards to convicting the world of sin, Jesus gets very specific. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will show people that they are sinful in a particular way, And that particular way of sin comes in the form of rejecting Jesus as Savior. It's a sin of rejecting the one who saves us from our sin, which of course, we know that sin is breaking of God's law, which was given to Israel in written form. And we know that even if we didn't have the written form, the law of God is, its work is written on our hearts, scripture says, so that we know that we are sinning and sinning against God. And so Moat could walk into a church service not knowing Jesus, who is the word of life, not knowing the written law of God, and yet he says the Holy Spirit could take the essence of God's law Right? That we instinctively, because of God writing it on our hearts, the work of it on our hearts, we instinctively know it's wrong to steal, that it's wrong to lie, that it's wrong to commit adultery, that it's wrong to take God's name in vain. It's wrong to covet. It's wrong to have other gods before God. And he could convict us and make our conscience feel guilty. The Holy Spirit could. And that would trouble Moat. We would read later in other things that he wrote that he would be troubled for some time to come. For several years, this bothered him that he was convicted that even though he didn't know the letter of the law, he didn't know the Bible, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit brought it to bear on his conscience, right? And so sometime later, after going into that church and hearing the things of God, he finally stopped rejecting Jesus. And so that was in the year 1813. At the age of 18, he was born again by the Spirit of God. Not long after this, he joined a church for a while, and for whatever reason, I couldn't figure out why, but he found the ministry there insufficient for uh, some reason particular, I don't know, but uh, he didn't find it sufficient. And so he left that church, and he joined another church at the age of 20, and that's where he was baptized. Eventually, he moved to Southwark uh, in London. Southwark is a borough, and I didn't know what a borough was, so I had to look that up. A borough is a, it's an incorporated town. Within a city that's able to elect their own leaders to par- parliament. So even though you have a city, right? you have within it a town, and they become so, uh, uh, I wouldn't say powerful, but they get to the point where they are able to have their own representative in parliament. And it was there that Moat uh, began to pursue his career in cabinet making. Went from apprentice, now he's a cabinet maker. And it was there he began writing for the press. Right? We don't really use that phrase nowadays, but in essence, he was a news writer or a reporter. He wrote for the press. And so he's growing as a news writer. He's growing even as a hymn writer because he loved to sing songs to God. And he actually wrote more than 100 hymns. The one that we're talking about tonight is his most popular, okay? At the age of 55. Now, I'm, I'm 50, I know some of us are right, or just a couple years older than me, um, but at the age of 55, Moat eventually became a pastor of a Baptist church in Horsham, Sussex. 55. Okay, this just goes to show you that you don't have to be in your 20s, you don't have to be in your 30s to be called into ministry. You don't even have to be one of descent from a pastor or a theological intellect. Remember that this guy's parents, they owned a tavern, they owned a bar, uh, a hotel, if you will, where people could go and stay in town and uh, gather and talk and drink. He went to a school where the Bible was not allowed. He had a non-ministry job in cabinet making, and he's writing news reports for the press, for the paper, and all of this prior to becoming a pastor. And by all intents and purposes, he's probably beyond the age where people think of changing careers. Right? It's not normally at the age of 55 you're like, I, I think I'm going to go into something new. Usually at that point you're, you're getting closer to the age of retirement and you're like, okay uh, I'm doing well in my career. I've moved up through the ladder steady job. Here he goes into ministry. Now when I was a teenager and I attended summer camps at Camp Pondo that's the same camp that we're taking our teenagers to this weekend for winter camp. Um, I went there as a teenager to where I met my wife right there. And I remember hearing different speakers over the years. And the different speakers sometimes would challenge us and say that, hey, listen up, teenager. God may be calling some of you into ministry. I remember as a kid, even in the church that I went to, Calvary Baptist Church of National City, that our pastor frequently reminded us that God could direct and call someone at any point in their life to be a pastor or a missionary. Now, I'm a teenager at this point, so I'm not thinking me Like, God wouldn't call a teenager to do that. So I remember looking in my peripheral vision, trying to see who who could God be calling, all right, that was an adult, that would be qualified to do ministry. I wonder who it could be. Never did I think it would be me. Now, some of you might be in that same boat. That could never be me. And I'm just talking about this guy right here, 55 years old, being called into ministry. That could never be me. Uh, I'm too young, or I'm too old. Uh, I got a family, think about and i heard they don't get paid well right who knows what any number of things you might be thinking when i went into ministry one of my uncles all his concern was does it come with dental and medical right i'm like i don't know i just want to serve god but you might be in that same boat maybe you're thinking i don't know the bible as well as i could i'm a new believer maybe that would be an excuse or i have a good job and believe it or not sometimes we often sound like moses not me lord i'm slow of speech You got the wrong person to speak for you. Someone else is more qualified. Maybe it is that we don't really believe that God is all powerful. That might hinder some of us from heeding a call to go into ministry. I'm just saying, be open to what God might have for you in the future, all right? If he can call a 55-year-old who was into cabinet making and news writing and didn't grow up in a Christian home, then he can certainly call some of us. For what it's worth, my mind is wired for math and science and biology and that kind of stuff, okay? When it comes to history, when it comes to geography, when it comes to reading and writing and retention, I struggle. That is an area that is, just doesn't come naturally to me. I can learn in those things just like we all can, but for me, it comes a lot harder, it's not like math and science where things stick naturally. My synapses and neurons are all just a little bit different for some reason in that area. And so um, I, it, I'll tell you this. This is a secret because I don't tell anybody, all right? It's going out on the internet for all to know, but it's a secret. I regularly forget things from the books that I preach in. That is so frustrating. There are books that I spent 26, 27 lessons and I preached in, and then there are times when I'm like, okay, what's that book about? That's, that's how my mind is. It doesn't come naturally to me, okay? But then God calls me as a teenager to go into ministry, to study languages, to study history, to read a hard book that was written in another language, the Bible, and even when it's in English, it's hard, okay? I'm only telling you that because I want you to know that in, uh, God's strength will work through weaknesses, whether you're 55 years old and you're thinking, I'm well past my prime, or you're thinking, I'm too young, or you're thinking, I got a good job, or whatever your excuse might be, God can call you into ministry. Mote became a pastor at 55. Now, it is said that under his ministry, quite a few people were saved. Quite a few people were saved. His church was extremely grateful. They loved their pastor. And they even offered to give him the church building as a gift, okay? Um, That's... That's uh, unheard of, and uh, I don't know of any pastor that would say yes to that, but just goes to show you how much they loved him. And he declined to receive that as a gift. Here's what he said. The quote's on the screen. I do not want the chapel. I only want the pulpit. He's not talking about the physical pulpit, like he didn't want to just take this and lift it and take it home. He meant the privilege of preaching in the pulpit. He says, and when I cease to preach Christ, then turn me out of that. That's an amazing quote, just to show you his heart. I do not want the pulpit. I'm sorry, I do not want the chapel. I only want the pulpit. And when I cease to preach Christ, then turn me out of that. That's my kind of guy. Preach Christ or get out. Preach Christ or get out. He must have had an extremely good immune system because it is said that he never missed preaching on any Sunday the entire time he pastored due to illness all right, or, or uh, any other reason. Nevertheless, as with most people, his health began to deteriorate in 1873. When he could no longer study and he could no longer write his sermons, he called the congregation together to let them know of his condition. He explained that he could no longer fulfill his pastoral duties and that he ought to resign as the pastor. A year later, he commented to those that were close to him uh, that he was about to go to heaven. He knew his time of death was near And he said, the truths I have preached. Thank you, brother. The truths I have preached, I am now living upon and they will do to die upon. So the things that he was teaching were good enough to live by and they were good enough to see his exit from this world into heaven. Amazing things he had to say. Literally up until the day he died, he spoke about the precious blood of Christ that takes away all of our sins. He said, and this quote isn't up there, but he said, it is this, this blood, it is this that makes peace with God. He died in 1874 and he was buried on the chapel property in the rear. Now in regards to the hymn that we're gonna look at today, that's just a little bit about him. Not a lot of uh, stuff is out there regarding his, uh, his ministry and life, just a few things But um, there is one story I want to tell. Okay, There's a particular story associated with the hymn that we're going to look at tonight that got it off the ground. One day, Moat was writing out the lyrics to the song, a good portion of it. And he wrote uh, four out of the six verses that were in the original hymn. The original hymn had six, modified down to four. And so uh, that's where we're at today with the song, four verses. But he had written out four of the verses the following Sunday. After church, after church service, he was greeted by one of the brothers in the church, Brother King. That's all we know of his name. Don't know his first name. But Brother King came up to tell Moat that his wife was very sick. And he asked uh, Pastor Moat to come and visit his sick wife and to minister to her. And Moat agreed to do so. Before the visit was over, he went that afternoon to go visit her. An opportunity arose for Moat to share his song that was in progress with her. Later that night, Brother King asked Mote for a copy of the lyrics because he said his dying wife enjoyed the song so much. For Moat, this kind of shocked him, stopped him in his tracks, and he hadn't expected it to minister to a dying woman as powerfully as it did. And so he went home that night, he wrote out the rest of the song, and he took a copy of the completed song to this dying sister. Later, he made 1,000 copies to give out to his friends and to family and those around him. He sent it into a publication called Spiritual Magazine and didn't put his initials on it, didn't put his name on it. And so uh, it was published in a, hymn of, a collection of hymns in 1836. But because he left his initials off, there went a period of time where nobody knew who actually wrote the song. And eventually it was found out that it was him. The original title... All right we're we're calling this song cornerstone because that's how we sing it in our church okay the original title is the immutable basis for a sinner's hope the immutable basis for a sinner's hope immutable means unchanging when you think of x men you think of mutants right they're mutable they mutate mutants if you're immutable you're an immutant, all right? You cannot change. And so that's what immutable means. The unchanging basis for a sinner's hope. That's what this song was originally called. Sometimes it was titled Jesus, all in all. Nowadays, and this is the uh, title that I grew up knowing it as, it is called the solid rock. So maybe you know, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Um, That's what that hymn is most popularly known as. A lot of hymn books will title it, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less, based on the first line of the song. And so there's one, two, three, four, four titles that uh, this song has been known by, and if we add our title today, Cornerstone, then it would make six. And so what we're going to do at this point, transitioning from the biography and the background of the author, we're going to look at the song itself, and let's see where some of these things are taken from in regards to the Word of God, all right? So... And I forgot to pass this out, but uh, who do I have? Albert, in my backpack, brother, in uh, the big zipper in the back, there should be a folder with lyrics in there. If you could just pass those out to everybody, that would be great. I would appreciate it. Uh, But up on the screen, you'll see the lyrics. Verse 1, I'm going to read through the song, and then we're going to make some commentary on the song. Verse 1 says this. And I may have left it at home. So if there's no red or blue folder in there, then uh, I struck out. I left it at home on my table. All right? Huh? I did it on purpose. All right. All right. Verse 1 says this My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. The refrain, I'll explain what that means a little bit later, says On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Verse 2 moves on. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Verse 3. His oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. In verse four, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. There's a lot in there to unpack. We're gonna cover quite a bit, but let's look at verse one. Let me reread it for you. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean, in Jesus' name. Now, note uh, that moat. I didn't intend for that to rhyme, but notice that moat is expressing his trust in two themes. Or two things. Number one, Jesus' blood, which is to say his death. All right. He is also trusting in the righteousness of Christ. That is to say, Jesus' perfect obedience to the law of God. We have all broken the law of God. We've disobeyed God, we've lied, we've stolen, we've cursed God, uh, his, his name, use his name as a curse word, we've uh, had other gods before God and not loved him with all of our heart, mind, and soul, and strength. We go on and on, and we see that we have not perfectly obeyed God. And so Moat is trusting in the perfect obedience, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he personalizes the song by, by the use of my, my hope, okay, Again, and I mentioned this before, it's not wrong to use the words me, my, I, we, us, or ours in a song. There are some people who would say, if you have those kind of words in there, you're singing a man-centered song and it's not appropriate. Well, all you have to do is go back and look at scripture and you'll see that the psalmist uses me and my and I and we and us and our. It can be a man-centered song focused on us, by the use of those words but you, the use of those words do not automatically mean that the song qualifies as an ungodly song or a man-centered song okay so we relate to god he relates to us and uh, edward mote is personalizing his experience and understanding of god all right mote expresses his faith again in two things Jesus' blood and righteousness now there are many verses that we can go to in order to show where this is derived from scripture i'm going to spend time on just one passage that shows and echoes the exact thing that Moat is declaring, okay? Philippians 3, 8 through 10. Philippians 3, 8 through 10 says, and this is the apostle Paul talking. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, for Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that, meaning that righteousness, which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, there's a whole sermon in that passage of Scripture right there. I'm just going to make a few comments. The Apostle Paul, like Moat, is building his hope on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Okay? If you read in, uh, prior to this Scripture, if you go back to Philippians 3, 5, you can see that Paul is not trusting in the right of circumcision, He's not trusting in the country that he's from, nor his particular tribe, not his ethnicity, even though he's a Pharisee uh, and has high position, he's not trusting in that, he's not trusting in his obedience to the law. In the words of Moe, "Paul would not dare trust the sweetest frame, because that's what the song says. right? Paul is wholly leaning on Jesus' name. Makes sense? It's trusting Jesus completely. When Moat says that he'd not lean on a frame, a sweet frame, the word frame, um, most of us hopefully will know what this is, but it's a rigid structure that surrounds something like a door or a window. Okay? Frames are strong. They have to be because if you open a door or window, there's nothing below it to support it. Alright? Uh, what's above. And so you can lean on a frame, you can sit on a frame, and in older times, frames sometimes had their very own beauty and their very own craftsmanship. Emote would distrust a sturdy frame before ever distrusting in Jesus's mighty name. Now, as we look at, for a moment, Philippians 3, 8 through 10 you can see that Paul counts everything as lost. All those things that I listed, his ethnicity, his background, the country he's from, his uh, religious clout, his circumcision, all that stuff. He says, I count all that as lost. My achievements, my religious standing, my religious obedience. It is, I, I've, I will not use that as the basis of standing before God on judgment day. I cannot trust that to save me. I cannot. They are rubbish to him. Now, that's a clean way of putting it, rubbish. In the Greek, the word is skubalon, which means excrement or dung. That which is worthless or detestable. That which is worthless or detestable, excrement, dung. I consider all those things as refuse, garbage, the entrails of an animal, garbage, junk, right? Everything else compared to Christ is junk, trash. Because, why? Because Paul sees the infinite worth of Christ and his righteousness. There's a righteousness that comes from Christ and I need God to see that righteousness in me or else I will be damned. That's what this scripture is getting at. Paul recognized that he didn't have righteousness intrinsically. He wasn't born perfect. And his experience shows him that he's a lawbreaker just like we all are. We all disobey God. So Paul recognized that this righteousness isn't internal. Never in a million years would God look at Paul and say, Paul, you are righteous of your own accord. Never in a million years would that happen. Instead, Paul said, I need righteousness that does not come from obedience to the law. Rather, I need a righteousness, a perfection that comes through faith in Christ. Whose righteousness is this? Scripture says it's God's righteousness. It's God's, and it can only come through faith in Christ. Now, uh, I'm going to use a couple of terms here that you may not have heard before, but I want to make a distinction, and I won't leave you hanging, all right? I'll make sure you understand them. I want to make a distinction between the instrumental cause of justification and the principal cause of justification because Paul mentions them both in the scripture, okay? Now, again, that's a mouthful. You're like, I've never heard those terms before. You might as well be a doctor explaining heart surgery to me, okay? Well, I won't leave you hanging, okay? I wanna make a distinction again between the instrumental cause of justification and the principal cause of justification, okay? Let me explain justification first. The word justification is when God declares you just. He declares you perfect. He declares you righteous, Before his eyes, as a judge might declare someone uh, uh, not guilty, God declares us not guilty, but righteous, perfect, as if we kept the perfect law of God. He treats you as if you obeyed his law perfectly. And for a second, imagine, anybody here grew up in the 80s? Raise your hand, all right? Imagine if you were a kid in the 70s or 80s, okay? You've been playing outside on a hot day all summer, and you feel that intense thirst coming on. So you walk over to the garden hose and you turn on the water, right? You need that water bad because you're like, I'm going to die without it. I need something to quench my thirst. And so you put the hose to your lips to get that cool, refreshing drink, right? The reason that your thirst is quenched is because you finally got water, right? That's easy to understand. But there's another reason that your thirst got quenched. The hose delivered it to you, okay? Yes, the water got to you, you needed it, but why did you get the water? The hose delivered it to you. Now, the principal cause of your thirst being quenched is that you now have water. That's the primary, the principal cause that you are no longer thirsty, okay? The instrumental cause that your thirst is quenched is because the hose delivered water to you. That's the instrument by which the water was brought. The primary cause, I got water in me. This, I want to call it a secondary cause, but it's the instrumental cause, all right? It's a technical term that was delivered to you. When it comes to God declaring you righteous and perfect, the water, in essence, is God's righteousness. You need righteousness, God's righteousness, so that God will not see you as a sinner anymore, but sees you as having perfection. That's the principal cause of justification, The primary reason that God says, I don't see you as a sinner anymore is because you have the righteousness of God, all right? Now, the instrumental cause is faith. Faith is like that garden hose. When you trust in Jesus, there is this attachment between you and Christ. You are trusting Jesus to save you and faith is like that water hose that delivers the righteousness of God to you. Now, that may not be a perfect illustration, but in my brain, I can understand that. Make sense to you? That's why you must believe in Christ as Savior. It's the hose, so to speak, that brings righteousness to you, which is the primary reason, all right, that you are no longer counted as a sinner and counted righteous in Christ. And so we are declared righteous because we have the righteousness of God within, them, but, uh, within us, but that's because it's delivered to us by faith. We connect to Christ via faith. Now, uh... So there you got your principal cause and your instrumental cause. Hopefully, I didn't leave you behind, okay? And you're not just running along trying to catch up. Hopefully, that made a lot of sense to you. But that's why faith is necessary. So when people say, oh, you just got to have faith to be a Christian, that's not really the way scripture describes it. We must have faith in Christ. It's not just believing in anything. It's not just trusting in anything. It's faith in Christ. It connects us to Christ, which delivers to us the righteousness of Christ, okay? So your faith is not some act whereby God looks at you and says, good boy, good girl, okay? That's not faith. It's it's not an act whereby God saves you and says, I'm saving you because you have faith. God saves us because righteousness is delivered to us Because we have faith in Christ and he delivers it to us, okay? Um, When you believe, you are saved and justified, but it is because you are connected to Christ via faith and receive his righteousness. And that's why a hymn like this is so important. Because your hope should be built on nothing less than Jesus' death for your sins and his perfect life for your justification. You cannot be justified unless you believe in Christ. And again, when you get that righteousness, God says, I declare you just. I declare you perfect. I declare you righteous. I declare you as if you lived the perfect life of Jesus. And that's what I see. So I will trust in nothing else. I won't trust in my Sunday school attendance. I won't trust in how much I gave to church. I won't trust in the fact that my parents were Christians. I won't trust in the fact that I know 10 pastors and that I have a a family Bible this big. I'm not gonna trust the fact that I paid my taxes or that I never got fired from my job or that I never beat my kids or I, I, I celebrated my anniversary every year. We don't depend upon any of that. We depend upon Christ and lean on him for our justification. So there's no trusting of money. We're not trusting of any of that. We don't trust the government. We don't trust our religious heritage. We lean on Jesus. That is to say, we put our trust in in, in him. Just like you would lean on a windowsill or a frame to support your weight, you trust Jesus like that. No different than putting on a parachute when a plane is gonna go down and you know you're gonna have to jump out. You jump out with the parachute on, knowing and trusting that it will save your life. And that's what Christ is. He is your life savior. He will rescue you. So, that's what we need to do. Trust Him. The refrain of the song, that's verse 1, says this. The refrain says, On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Now, the refrain of the song simply says, I'll explain it, that Mode is standing on Christ the solid rock. All other ground is sinking sand. Now, this might sound very familiar to you, and hopefully it does. If not, that's all right. But there's a portion of scripture where Jesus teaches, and um, he's talking about how people build their houses. Some people build them on a a firm foundation, on a rock foundation, and some people will build it on a sandy foundation, like a riverbed. And he says, a wise person will build his house on a solid rock so that when rain comes, the house will stand Because it's on a firm foundation. He says, but the foolish person will build his house on sand. And when the rains come, the foundation is destroyed and washed away because of the sand. And therefore the house will fall. Jesus was referring to his teachings as the rock on which we stand. He says that whoever listens to him, we are like the wise person. And if we don't listen to him, then we are like the foolish person. And one of the things that Jesus went on to teach is that he is our savior and that we need to believe that he is going to give his life and rise again to save us. So you would be a foolish person if you don't listen to the teachings of Jesus because Jesus said, I'm the one who can save you by my death and resurrection. And you would be wise to listen to that teaching. And so listen to Jesus' teaching. You must trust him to save you because it's through that trust that leaning on him building your hope on nothing less than him that you receive the righteousness of Christ. As a side note, Pastor Steve will be preaching on that passage soon when he gets to Matthew 7, all Right? maybe in another year or so. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know you're, you're covering uh, Matthew in depth. I think you're in chapter six right now, right? All right, so that's coming up. So maybe we'll sing that song that day, all right? Now, verse two says, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace and every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil. Now, I won't spend much time on this particular verse in the song, but the imagery has been often used in many contemporary songs as well. It should come as no surprise that we face many difficulties in life. Human experience varies uh, from death to job loss to health issues to relationship catastrophes to wars to political unrest. There's a lot of things that we can consider dark moments in life. Those moments... Like a dark room, they can hide the lovely face of Christ so that it becomes difficult to behold Him. If you've ever been through a trying and difficult time, you can get so consumed and so distraught by that situation that it's hard to meditate upon Christ. The term veil. Right when darkness veils his lovely face, the term veil is is uh, means to to lower something. That's what the term veil means, and it usually is a reference to a piece of cloth that you lower over your face uh, during um, mourning times. Um, sometimes it's used in weddings when the bride covers her face with a veil, but uh, even more so when people die, you see that people will don a veil. And so during the storms of life, Mode is learning to rest on Jesus' unchanging grace the unchanging grace of christ that is not some concept that is meant to escape us so don't let that pass by what does it mean to rest in the in christ's grace what does it mean well it means to continually look to jesus who died and rose again for our sins That is the grace of God manifested to us, that Jesus died and rose again for our sins to bring us to God forevermore. And so when darkness is making it hard to behold Christ, I rest on his unchanging grace. When life is rough, I look to the one who's giving me eternal life. I look to the gospel and remind myself of these great things, that the Lord has saved me and that I will be with him in a new heaven on a new earth. In every high and stormy gale, right? In other words, in every storm with fierce winds, right? You've heard of gale gale force winds, right? In every storm with fierce winds, Christ's grace, the gospel, is where you need to set your anchor so that you are not moved, so that you are not shaken and blown around and dashed upon the rocks of destruction. That's the imagery that he's trying to paint. That if you are not firmly anchored in the gospel, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and that is not your waking hope every day, and your sleeping hope as you rest, that if I die tonight, I will be with God because I believe and trust in Jesus to save my soul and my body. So no matter what experience comes, we go through another great recession or a great depression, the government confiscates everything that you have, and you're like, oh my gosh, Christ has saved me. I am grounded in that. I will not be shaken. Yeah, it might be a little frustrating, it might be a little scary, but I am not hesitating and I am not moving and budging when it comes to my Savior. He holds me firm and I am anchored firmly in Him. Okay? So when darkness of life comes, don't ever stop clinging to Christ. Don't ever stop meditating upon the gospel. There's beautiful things that he is saying here that are very helpful and very pastoral. This is good biblical counsel, I would say. Right? from his experience. When you're struggling in life, cling to Christ and refresh your memory of what he has done to make your life eternally blessed. And it will be one day, even though not now. Verse three says, his oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. So notice again in verse three that the storm language is used. Okay, floodwaters are now in view. There's more turbulence and more hardship in life. Everything around his poor soul is crashing about, giving way, but Christ is his hope and Christ is that which stays him. Okay, like these are older songs so we don't talk like this a lot, but Christ is that which stays him. It keeps him from moving. If you're gonna stay put, you're not gonna move. Christ stays me. Okay? and keeps me from getting tossed around with waves and the troubles of life, keeps me from being shaken. But it's the first part of the verse that gives him the support he needs. The first part of this verse that gives him the support he needs to remain unmoved in life's ever-moving circumstances and torrents. He says it's Christ's oath. It's his covenant and his blood. And it keeps Moat firm-footed. And I promise you, these will do the same for you. These will do the same for you. In Galatians three, we see the use of uh, covenant terms. Uh, I'm sorry. We see the use of the terms covenant and promise, and we're going to look at that scripture right now. Okay? It'll be up. Uh, actually, it won't. We're not going to use that one up on the screen. But in Galatians three, if you were to look there, you would see the word, uh, the terms covenant and the terms promises used together. A covenant is a contract. When you get married, that is a covenant, which is a contract. Uh, Last year, my mom got uh, married, and as we were there watching it, the judge said, marriage is a contract. That's exactly the words that she used, okay? And you both are testifying and making vows. You're making a contract to love each other for better or for worse. But a covenant is a contract, and contracts are promises, if you understand what contracts are. I work in the auto industry and I sign people up and do contracts almost every day. It is the bank promising to lend the money to someone else based on their credit worthiness and someone else promising to pay the bank back. And there's all kinds of conditions and stipulations in there for how this thing is supposed to go down. Contracts are promises. A contract is an agreement between two parties to do things. And both parties are obligated to perform what they promised. And if they don't, they will have been considered Uh, to have broken that covenant, broken that promise, or to be in breach of contract. Those are terms you might hear or know of. But sometimes when we look at Scripture, one of the really neat things about Scripture is sometimes covenants are one-sided. One-sided. There are promises from God to do something, and He's going to do everything. When, And I'll give you an example. When God cut a covenant with Abraham... It was Abraham awake or asleep? Does anybody remember? He was asleep, right? Now you had one of two choices to go, right? 50-50 chance of getting that one. God was going to bless Abraham in order that the world would be blessed. God was going to give Abraham a special land. God was going to make a great nation out of Abraham. Abraham did not issue any, I will do this or I will do that. He, he did not speak at all. Okay, It was all God saying, I will do this. So it's a one-sided covenant. God makes a promise or an oath. Sometimes, uh, like the covenant God made with Israel, you see both parties making promises. The Sinaitic covenant, right? The Mosaic covenant, the old covenant. God wrote the terms of the covenant. and said, this is what I want you to do. Israel says, we will do it. So they obligated themselves to do it, okay? Of course, we see that they broke the covenant. They broke the contract. In breach of that, and so God took them to court, so to speak. He pronounced judgments upon them, and they were issued upon them. And we learn about this in Joel and in many of the Old Testament prophets, uh, minor prophets, and we see it in the book of Judges. We see it all after the end of Deuteronomy to the end of the Old Testament. But in the third verse of this song, Moat says, "Uh, It's Christ's oath. Christ made a promise, it's his covenant. Christ made a contract. It's his blood that support, it's this contract that supports me in life's troubles, okay? So we must ask, where where does Christ make a promise to us? Well, look at Luke chapter 22, verse 19 through 20. Many of us know this passage as one of the communion passages. Jesus, the scripture says this, and Jesus took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, the new promise, the new contract in my blood. Now, it's important that you see that covenants in scripture are often inaugurated Or uh, started with the with the shedding of blood, right? And they're made unalterable with the shedding of blood. They're enacted and set in stone. Okay, so we're talking about again the song, his oath, his blood, his covenant. Okay, it's important to see that there's a covenant that Christ has made with his people. Okay, and the shedding of blood inaugurates it and makes it unalterable. In the Abrahamic covenant that I mentioned earlier, when Abraham was asleep, there were sacrifices. There was blood and sacrifice that inaugurated that covenant. And so when Jesus was instituting the Lord's Supper, he did so with covenant language, with contractual language, with promised language, that of an oath. His body is the sacrifice. His blood is what was poured out for the purpose of saying, I'm giving my blood to initiate the new covenant, to confirm it, and to ratify it so that I will do what I have vowed to do, which is to save a people for myself. I'm giving my lifeblood for you to save you. And my, my blood seals this covenant. And that is what should support you in all of your life. That's what this song is saying. His oath, his covenant, his blood supports me in the, the whelming flood, this overwhelming flood that takes place in my life from time to time. And so, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, we see that covenant language and promises are being made. That's what should support us. If you, ever have to, if you ever have to live through the death of a child, if you ever find yourself bankrupt, if you ever have to live through horrible circumstances, again, your assets are seized by the government, and you have to flee to the hills because of persecution, and the church is being tortured and sought after in order to be killed, when you're on your deathbed, know that the promises of Christ will not fail. Do they support you in life's whelming flood? Though you are struggling to see him through extreme pain and storms of life, know that you are in a kingdom that cannot be shaken, Hebrews tells us. Hold firm to the promise and the covenant of Christ. See your life in view of Christ's covenant. Be stayed in him. Rest in him. Be not swayed and stand firm. Be a man. Be a woman. I'm not saying this is easy, but what I am saying is that Christ does not break his word. And then verse four says this. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. The arrival of our king to earth will be heralded with a trumpet blast, Scripture says. While it's not stated outright, you need to see that Mote's belief in Christ uh, is that Christ rose from the dead, okay? If Christ is still in a tomb dead, then he surely cannot come again, right? If he's dead in a tomb, he can't come again. He can't descend from heaven. And so it's understood by the fact that Christ is coming again. It's understood and inherent in his statement that Christ is alive and coming again, hence a resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says this, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So this trumpet blast that initiates Christ coming into the world is a signal that our final salvation is but moments away. We shall forever be with the Lord in new bodies because we will be resurrected if we're dead, if not, we'll be caught up in the air to meet him and our bodies will be transformed and what is corruptible will put on uh, that which is incorruptible and we will escort the Lord back to earth where he will reign. And so while several, let me just say this, while several prominent positions concerning end times are posited by believers, are put out there by believers, the point is, according to 1 Thessalonians, is that we are to encourage each other with the coming of Christ, not be divided over it. And that is why I will tell you that I can worship with someone who is a premillennial, I can worship with someone who is a postmillennial, and I can worship with someone who is an amillennial because the point of the return of Christ is to serve as an encouragement for us. Okay? Division, I will tell you, is not welcome in our church, but you don't have to have a particular end time theology to attend our church or to be a member at Sovereign Way um, unless you already believe that Christ bodily returned to Uh, earth and you think we're in the eternal state now okay then there's going to be some contention all right Um, but that said Christ is coming again the song continues and Mo writes that at times he, uh, he desires to be found in Christ right he says oh may I then in him be found because if he's in Christ to be found in Christ he'll be dressed in the righteousness of Christ he'll be faultless He'll be justified before the throne of God. What, that, that's an immense blessing, okay? There's a lot to tease out there, but the righteousness of Christ, because right now we have filthiness, we are to have that filthiness removed from us, it goes onto Christ on the cross so that he suffers for our sin, and the Lord dresses us, as it were, in robes of righteousness so that the Lord God sees us in Christ's perfection. And so he says, that's why I wanna be found in Christ. I wanna be in Christ. I want Christ to be in me so that I can stand faultless before the throne of God on the day that the Lord uh, uh, looks at me and says, Welcome into the kingdom. I see your righteousness. Come on in. What a great song for us to continue to sing. I'm going to mention a couple things, not much, but when it comes to the technicality of the song, it's a very simple song. The song's meter is 8888, eight, 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 okay? That means there's eight syllables per line, and there are four lines. The refrain, which I'll explain briefly, that consists of eight syllables as well, but there's only three lines in the refrain. And so it's a very simple pattern, okay? But let me explain what a refrain is, because in the song, there's verses one, two, three, four, and there's a refrain. A refrain is a musical term and it has to do with the part of the song that's repeated so that the theme of the song is repeated, okay? It can be repeated at any point of the song, but it's for most parts, it's re- for the most songs that we sing, it's repeated after a verse, and then the refrain comes, okay? But a refrain has to do with the lyrical content, the theme that's repeated over and over. Now, that's different than a chorus. Like, most of the songs that we sing have choruses. We sing a verse and a chorus, a verse and a chorus. In the song that we're looking at, there's a verse and a refrain, a verse and a refrain. So what's the difference between a chorus and a refrain? Let me explain this briefly. Okay? Um, And it took me a while to figure this out. And my daughter, who's about to graduate with a degree in music, even she was struggling with this one. So it took me a while, but eventually figured it out. Okay, how's the difference? The difference between a refrain and a chorus might be subtle, but it's worth noting. The refrain, once again, has to do with the repeated message and the theme of the song, the chorus has to do with the repeated musical voices, whether that be instruments or human voices. So I want you to think of a song without any words for a second, okay? And you hear the song played, and then you're like, oh, that's the main part of the song that's really catchy when it comes to all the instruments. You might have a flute playing, a violin, a trombone, a trumpet, a guitar, drums. All those instruments play in unison on the repeated part of that song, and they all come together to form that chorus, okay? Like a choir. But if one of those instruments is the human vocal cords... You've added another instrument, and they're singing words. They're all part of the chorus, whether it's human singing, or instruments playing, or drums beating. Make sense? That's a chorus, but it's musically oriented, where everybody is working in unison, okay? So, you got the refrain, which is more about the lyrical content and the theme of the song. Over here, you got the unity of the song in the chorus. But for our sakes, whenever we sing a refrain, the repeated theme of a song... It's often with music instruments playing, and that's why we call it a chorus. Make sense? All right. Hopefully that wasn't too difficult, but now you're like, I'm a musical genius, right? You, you know everything about music, all right? So with that said, we're going to listen to a couple of versions, just two minutes of each song. The first, uh, and, and this is more or less for just enjoyment of music. It is good to enjoy God-glorifying music. You can close your eyes. You don't have to. You just... Listen to the different parts of the song, the different instruments. Um, This first version is by a gentleman named Aaron Strumpel and uh, a group called Page 116. Uh, It's C-X-V-I, but Page 116 and Aaron Strumpel. Um, Page uh, 116, um, a young lady with a beautiful voice. They do wonderful arrangements of hymns. We sing a couple in our church. One of them is Rock of Ages. The other is Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. We do her particular versions. But I want you to listen to my Hope is Built on Nothing Less, or Cornerstone, uh, by Aaron Strumpel, in page 116. Just a couple minutes. My hope is built on nothing less In Jesus' blood and righteousness I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand All other ground is sinking sand When darkness fails His lovely face. for that. Now, if you want to listen to the rest of that, go check it out. It's a beautiful version of this song. And because these are uh, public domain songs, meaning there's no more copyright laws applying to them, anybody has permission to alter and play the song and do whatever kind of version they want. Um, this next version is by a band that I'd never heard of before, but it's called You, Me, and the Bread. And when you hear the song, you're going to hear a droning note. It's a, It's a note that is Uh, played and it stays very consistent throughout the song and because of that it will create a little bit of tension in the song but you'll hear some really cool vocals at the beginning and then you'll hear them eventually come into the song and sing this is a another wonderful version of the song and then we'll close out with singing the version that we sing Versions of the songs are very pretty. Uh, the melody is uh, more traditional. What we sing is altered just a little bit, and hopefully, I can get the correct melody in my head here in just a second as we sing it. But let me uh, pray, and then we will sing this song together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for the song that Edward Moat wrote. We thank you that we can be reminded that our hope should be built on nothing less than Jesus' death and resurrection and his perfect life. We dare not trust anything else lest we be damned forever to hell. It is only Christ who saves, therefore it is only him who we trust. We thank you for our time together. May we glorify you in our singing now, in Jesus' name.